this edition of the Thoracic Surgery Resident Association's podcast. The opinions expressed in this podcast are provided for teaching purposes only and should not be applied directly to patient care. Hello, um, this is Robert Hawkins. I'm one of the integrated thoracic surgery residents at the University of Virginia. And I'm here with Gaurav Alawadi to talk about minimally invasive mitral surgery. Hi, I'm uh, Gaurav Alawadi. I'm the um, chief of uh, cardiac surgery at the University of Virginia, and I'm the surgical director of the Advanced Cardiac Valve Clinic. Why don't we start with a bit of a case scenario? Um, a 60-year-old uh, gentleman walks into your clinic with mitral disease found due to uh, worsening shortness of breath. Um, can you just walk us through a bit of your preoperative evaluation, starting with the first time you see them? Uh, what other additional studies do you commonly get, always get, rarely need? Sure. Um, so the first, obviously, uh, test is an echo, a surface echo, and presumably those patients that come to us have already uh, gotten that um, from the outside, um, and we can evaluate that. And that's a good uh, test to start with to look for lots of things, including the valve. Uh, the severity of valve disease is often best characterized by a transthoracic echo um, instead of a transesophageal echo. So the severity of how bad is the mitral valve leaking, how bad is an aortic valve leaking, um, how bad is a mitral gradient, although all those are better assessed with a surface echo. Um, other tests that, that we often get is a transesophageal echo, particularly if there's some question or uh, thought about what is the extent and mechanism of, her mitral, of the mitral valve disease. Um, it can often not just identify the major prolapse, if that's the disease, but if there are any secondary jets and gets into things like what's the risk of SAM or systolic anterior motion. So those are all things that you can get better characterized by a transesophageal echo. Um, the, the other tests eventually that the patients will need is a heart cath, uh, at least looking at the coronary injection, uh, making sure there's no coronary artery disease. Um, on that, uh, at that time of that test, if the patients are very symptomatic and if there was some concern on their echo that they have a lot of tricuspid valve disease or RV dysfunction, then a lot of times I will also ask to get a right heart cath to see what their pulmonary pressures are. It may not necessarily change if we do an operation or not, but it does help with our management of the patient pre-op. Maybe uh, rare cases we might even admit them ahead of time, uh, get our heart failure team to see them and diurese them. Um, the couple other tests I do get I, uh, is, a, if we're thinking about a minimally invasive approach, is a CT scan of the chest, abdomen, and pelvis. Um, you may have been aware that there's literature uh, from the STS database suggesting that um, minimally invasive mitral surgery has a higher stroke risk. So, uh, and I think that is in a lot of cases because uh, surgeons have not imaged um, the femoral vessels when they're doing femoral cannulation very carefully, and so we make it a routine to image all those ca all those patients to try to select those that have the least risk of, of a stroke from retrograde uh, perfusion from the femoral arteries. Uh, and then finally, um, PFTs and carotids in the cases where it's warranted based on the patient's disease. You, you mentioned the catheterization. Um, 
Are there any specific uh, points that you would talk to your cardiologist about in order to help facilitate with um, a mitral approach and femoral cannulation? Yeah, actually, that's a that's a good point, Robert. Um, the you know in general, a lot of cardiologists prefer to cath through the femoral arteries. Um, we have uh, a fair amount of experience that that there can be small focal dissections. And of course, when we're doing minimally invasive mitral surgery in particular, we tend to use the femoral arteries for cannulation. And if there's a, a small dissection there, you'll miss that or be unaware of that. So we uh, request that all the caths done for coronary injections are done through a radial approach to preserve um, the femorals for cannulation. And then just um, being extremely explicit, what what exactly do you scan? What type of CT scan? Chest, abdomen, pelvis? Yeah, so that's that comes up a lot. Uh, I think in the perfect world, we get a chest, abdomen, pelvis with IV contrast. Unfortunately, that tends to be a more challenging thing sometimes to get passed through insurance companies. So if, if they don't have a lot of vascular disease by history, they're not necessarily an older age, diabetic, maybe no previous coronary disease, I'll get a chest, abdomen, pelvis without IV contrast, and that's a good screen to look for calcium. Occasionally that means if they do have a lot of calcium, I may order a repeat CT scan, at least of the abdomen, pelvis with IV contrast, but that's a rarity. So if it's a young 60-year-old case uh, that you, you uh, propose, then uh, probably a non-contrast CT is okay, and we can get it through insurance more easily. If they're a redo, if they've had a previous cabbage, then I always get a CTA chest and pelvis with IV contrast because we want to see where those where those graphs are explicitly. Yeah, um, <clears throat> you mentioned uh, different uh, uh, mitral pathologies in terms of guiding TE and other testing. Are there any um, specific pathologies that would uh, make you want to do a minimally invasive approach or preclude you from doing a, a minimally invasive approach? What other um, patient selection criteria do you use for, for picking this approach? So um, that is something that's evolved and should evolve in your practice as you get more experienced. I think early on in your practice, you should pick uh, the patients that have the lowest risk. So a simple valve repair, like a P2 prolapse, or uh, a definite valve replacement, it's a rheumatic. Um, those, I think, would be good cases to start with the minimally, you know, if you, as you're starting a practice with minimally invasive. If, um, you know, as you get more experience, then you can take on more challenging cases. The more challenging cases are, you know, bilethal prolapse, multiple um, things are going to need to be done to repair the valve, so it's going to be a longer clamp time. Um, the the, the most dreaded patient is severe MAC. Um, those patients, it's it's selective um, who we do a minimally invasive approach versus a sternotomy approach. If we're intending to do a lot of uh, debridement of the annulus, I think it's a lot safer to do through a sternotomy. If we're using some of the, the newer techniques where we're using uh, transcatheter valves, um, balloon expandable valves, then in those cases, uh, a minimally based approach is, is um, really quite reasonable and a good good approach. So the things that really make me more concerned about a minimally invasive approach are oftentimes outside of the mitral valve. It's ventricular function, LV function to some extent. If they've got a very poor LV, you know, under 25%, uh, I'm 
a little more concerned because in that patient I want an expeditious operation. Uh, and most importantly is probably the RV dysfunction. If they've got a lot of RV dysfunction, I worry more about a minimally invasive approach. But again, as you get more experience, those patients you can also do, but it's not what I'd recommend early on. The other things that make me concerned, if they have a previous cabbage and they have live grafts, you have to be uh, a little more careful and certainly, I think, further along in your experience with minimally invasive approaches. I wouldn't do that early on. If they've had a previous um, right-sided thoracotomy, particularly if that pleurodesis, those can be very challenging and probably best suited with, with a sternotomy. Is there an ideal minimally invasive candidate? Someone who would say this is this really should be done. Yeah, a I think the approach. You know, the the ones that I get most excited about. Maybe that's you know when I'm seeing different many different types of clinic patients with mitral valve disease. Um, it's a thin, fairly young. You know, let's say 40s, 50s, 60s, uh, with a, with an isolated uh, prolapse of their of their valve, and and they're thin and healthy, and they don't have you know a lot of calcium on their. Uh, CT scan, um, then I think those are the ideal cases. You, are, you would be surprised, even in the young, younger patients, um, you get a CT and that they have some calcium in their iliacs, you know, more than just a little bit. And uh, we had one recently who was less than 60. And in that case, he really was keen on a minimally invasive approach. And you can also do an axillary cannulation, and that's what we did in that patient. Um, and so there are ways around it. It's more a matter of not necessarily ruling out minimally invasive, but planning your operation to get get a good outcome. Yeah, there are a lot of a lot of different parts to minimally invasive, and uh, the preoperative assessment. There are a lot of uh, different tests that need to, to go into this to make. So it one other well. thing I do want to mention is minimally invasive is a kind of a catch-all term, and it means a lot of different things to different people. Um, from you know a small inci- small incision, but a full sternotomy to a partial sternotomy to you know, a big thoracotomy to a, not, to a small thoracotomy with some root spreading to a thoracotomy. Without root spreading, obviously, then to a robotic, and that's kind of the full spectrum. And what we've, we do mostly uh, is a small thoracotomy with some general rib spreading. Um, and that small thoracotomy, it, it probably doesn't really matter in the end. It's what patients see. But, you know, that's typically about two to three inches in, in our experience. And I think with that incision, you can do most things. You can do an ablation, you can do a mitral repair or replacement, a tricuspid repair or replacement. Um, what I can't do through that is a bypass a cabbage or an aortic valve uh, replacement. Mm-hmm. So that's one other thing we do need to look at in the uh, in the operating room and with the transesophageal echoes to understand us how much uh, aortic valve disease they have that warrants intervention if they have moderate AI or worse than a minimally invasive approach can be a little more challenging and probably may be best served to do that patient through a sternotomy. Mm-hmm. Speaking of uh, technical aspects of this, mm-hmm. why don't we just start from the beginning. Uh, patient is now in the OR, we're starting to position, working with anesthesia. Are there any specific tips about positioning and what you're asking of your anesthesia colleagues? Yeah. Um, so every every I think surgeon has their own algorithm about how they cannulate, but uh, we do ask our radiologists, or our, sorry, anesthesiologists to put uh, a long radial arterial line sheath, and the traditional standard radial art lines are shorter, and they tend to um, 
since these are longer pump runs, maybe not give the most accurate readings um, during a longer pump run. So we asked them to do a long radial sheath. Um, aside from that, from positioning, we uh, put them with a, in, a, in a supine position with a little bump uh, underneath the right scapula so um, we can kind of extend their right arm down and get a little access, better access to the uh, right chest. Um, we have our anesthesiologists uh, put a central line in the right uh, internal jugular vein. And then I also asked them to put a short um, sheath, a 16 French sheath, just below that in the right uh, internal jugular vein because that's what I'm going to use for cannulating. There are some surgeons that cannulate with a single venous cannula. I always, always prefer uh, two venous cannulates. What we do with open surgery, I don't think you should change a lot of how you do your minimally invasive surgery. If, you're, if that's how you do your open surgery, you do bicable cannulations, you should do that for your uh, minimally invasive mitral and then tricuspid surgery as well. So um, two, two cannulations uh, by anesthesia of the right IJ, one's for their central line, which can or can not include a swan. I think if, if there's no need for a swan, if the patient's healthy, we don't, I'm fine without that. Um, a single lumen tube, and this is something that's evolved over time. I think when you're first starting, Maybe a double lumen might be better, so you can inflate and deflate the right lung as much as you need. Um, we use a, a single lumen tube with a blocker. Uh, the blocker works probably about 50% of the time, so then th that that's okay because there's only short instances that we're actually um, going to need the, the right lung down, particularly a short time when we're first entering the chest and a short time at the end when we're drying up an off-pump and after the protamines in. So for the most part, we don't need the lung down. So a single lumen tube is fine. Um, and then the other part of it is you need really good transesophageal echo imaging. So whether that's a cardiologist who comes into your OR or in, in many places a uh, cardiac trained anesthesiologist, but they have to be very good at echo, very good at 3D, be able to not just tell you what the main pathology is, but tell you about measurements of SAM risk, uh, measurements or uh, uh, identifying secondary jets um, so that you don't leave the OR with, with you know, any significant MR. You're, you're catching those at your initial clamp time. Yeah. So um, <clears throat> after the, all of that's completed and you're starting your part of the case, uh, what landmarks do you use, size of the thoracotomy, mm -hmm. how anterior, um, and... Uh, what other uh, uh, incisions and retraction methods do you use? Mm -hmm. um, there's obviously lots of little tricks, and so I'll try to cover them as best I can. Um, first of all, we, we start with a groin incision. Um, that's usually a two-finger breath incision transverse, just uh, uh, below the inguinal crease. I'm um, oh, sorry, above the inguinal crease and uh, take it down just below the, the inguinal reflection. We try not to dissect a lot of the, the groins just because they can get seromas and lymph leaks over time. Um, and we don't always actually encircle the uh, femoral artery for the same reasons because I think you can get more lymph leaks. We always put um, two purse strings in the femoral artery, one for uh, perfusion and one for distal perfusion. So one of the concerns, are, of, of course, is leg ischemia and so we'll always put a small sheath in distally. There's many different choices. We tend to use a 7 French Rick catheter uh, and put that in distally and we just wire it right into our arterial line. 
um, and then we use a large femoral venous sheath from the groin. So we'll start with the groin incision, put our purse strings. We'll, st we'll also do the thoracotomy. And the thoracotomy, I'm using the CT scan a lot to help define where the thoracotomy should be. Typically, it's the third, sometimes the fourth inner space. Um, and I try to stay fairly lateral, so it's usually lateral to the nipple, probably in, uh, close to the anterior axillary line. Um, and I really try to feel the ribs um, and try to stay right between the ribs. Once I enter the, the chest, I'll have the anesthesiologist drop the lungs and look to see, can I see uh, the pulmonary veins? If I can see the pulmonary veins right below me, I'm, I'm feeling pretty good. And I'd say maybe one in 10 times I may adjust that up or down to just be in the, in the best place I can for visualization. We do... Uh, uh, the thoracotomy and use a wound protector. Um, we put our rib spreader in, then we right at that point go ahead and put Expril in. And Expril we use as a long-acting um, rib block. We, we were doing it initially at the end of the procedure. It does not have much effect in my experience. It works much better if you give it at the beginning. And I think a lot of the pain literature supports that and we've seen a uh, pretty dramatic improvement in, in pain scores with that. And then um, at that point, we essentially go on pump right away and uh, decompress the heart, and that makes it easier then to open the pericardium. I'd say probably one in three times we need a diaphragm stitch, and we take that out through a, uh, a small counter incision uh, on the, uh, in between the ribs. Maybe it's, I'd say, the sixth or seventh rib interspace. And through that same incision, I'm putting a chest tube where I'm uh, insufflating the right chest with CO2. You don't need a lot of CO2, even just one liter of CO2 because it's kind of a closed chest is enough to um, provide um, you know, adequate cerebral protection. Uh, we'll open the pericardium and I kind of have a, a way of doing it. It's, it's a lazy C shape, but basically you want to stay enough away from the phrenic nerve, uh, but expose enough of the aorta. There's many ways to cross clamp the aorta. There's end of balloons and standard cross clamps. I use um, uh, something called a glabber cross clamp, which is a detachable clamp, but we're essentially cannulating the aorta with a cardioplegia needle. And uh, we use an atrial lift. There's various atrial lift. We make, need to make a counter incision for that uh, to uh, basically raise the septum. And, and I do have the anesthesiologist there when we're cross clamping the aorta because um, I want to make sure that the clamp's all the way across. There's good flow down the coronaries and that the ventricle is not distending. Do you um, use any uh, video, like a laparoscope or anything yeah. for your assistance? Or? I, I use it for, for me and for assistance and for training. Uh, we put a five millimeter, 30 degree scope in. It's usually just one interspace inferior and lateral to the wound. And, I, and um, we have a scope holder, a, a mechanical scope holder that then we can adjust as needed, but um, so that the trainee can see what I'm doing or vice versa, I can see what they're doing. And also, I think it's good to have uh, the whole OR have the ability to see what's going on and anticipate what the next sutures are. Yeah, the visualization for everyone else in the room is, is unmatched compared to open. It's really nice. Yeah. Um, in terms of the repair, we're assuming we're doing a repair in this case, are there any major differences in terms of techniques, instruments, uh, manipulation of the heart for visualization, now that you're coming from a more lateral aspect. So you want to open your left atrium fairly extensively. Sometimes you do need to put some stay sutures in in the atrium to just kind of splay it open. 
Um, but even in open surgery, I put my annular sutures in first because it helps splay out the valve and then you can really start looking at the pathology. Um, so I think that's especially critical. The other thing is it's okay to spend a little time getting the exposure right. That's very important with, with open surgery and very important with minimal invasive surgery. So if you have to adjust the atrial lift, go ahead and do that. And once I get the annular sutures in, then I think my, my hidden secret uh, or key tip is that I use a laparoscopic suction irrigator to test the valve. And we didn't get to talk about it, but I do use del nido cardioplegia anagrade alone. Uh, and I give a pretty good dose up front, usually 1,500 cc's. And when I test the valve, I also use del nido because I don't want to wash out the del nido that, that we gave with saline or anything like that. And one of the other important things is I keep the root vent open while we're testing the valve to make sure there's no air in the system and take, get all the air out of the ventricle and aorta. And then I have my assistant clamp the uh, aortic root vent once it's all de-aired to pressurize it. And I think that's important to make sure no air goes down the right coronary. There's lots of uh, experience early on in minimally invasive surgery of getting RV dysfunction. I think that's part of the reason why. Um, so then after that, I go ahead and, and repair the valve. And so you can use any technique that you're, you know, you've learned, whether it's a resection or artificial cords. I tend to use a lot of artificial cords. What, one thing that's helped a lot to make it easier is you can use a valve replacement sizer and put it at the level of the valve to push away the valve. Now you can really see the, um, uh, the papillary muscles very well, and you can put sutures in that. And actually that allows me to watch somebody else doing it too. Uh, and that, that um, I think, is a big satisfier for our fellows that they get to do that, that component, too. Uh, and, then I, and then there are a lot of questions I get about sizing the ring, and I do do that with the valve uh, closed, with the ventricle inflated again with the, with the cardioplegia uh, to test the valve. And, um, you know, we, the whole, whole other discussion about how to size that, but I tend to mostly true-size valves that are degenerative and not really downsizing that much. So oftentimes we're putting in a 36 or 38 ring, sometimes a 34, sometimes an even a 40 if it's a big Barlow's type valve. And then I do the final leaflet height reduction with uh, with cords, even though I may have already put them in place, but the final height determination I do after the ring is down. Mm -hmm. And we do use Cornot to kind of help speed things along. Mm -hmm. So after the valve is in, we're um moving on towards uh, coming off pump. Uh, are there any major differences compared to open, uh, wing, weaning and closure? And Yeah, that's a good question. So there are, there are some important um, subtle differences. You know, when an open case, you check the valve, you deer, if all looks good, you come off pump. When you're doing minimally invasive, you have to get that cardioplegia needle out before you fully come off pump. So it's almost like we come off pump twice. We first First thing I do is I try to de-air before I take the clamp off and um, you know fill the heart and, and uh, keep the root vent open and ventilate. And I try to milk the left ventricle with a little sponge stick through our incision. And then I take the clamp off. Um, and I do. you have to put pacing wires also before you take the clamp off. Otherwise, it gets a lot harder uh, for exposure's sake. And we start pacing and, and let's say now the heart's working and, and you start filling and ventilating and I, uh, you have to f ventilate both sides um, so that you really fully de-air. We fully de-air and 
check the valve, that all looks good. Then we need to go back on full support, drop the lungs again, and then you can get your cardioplegia needle out. Uh, and that point, I actually put my chest tubes in. I put the pacing wires uh, in through the chest tubes so they were kind of out of the way and ready to go. And then we come off once and, and for all. And, and um, we, I know we didn't talk about the, the full part of the cannulation, but I mentioned a, an SVC cannula through the right internal jugular that um, we have the anesthesiologist place a short catheter in. We'll, we'll change that over at the time of cannulation. When we pull that, we just put a purse string and hold, hold pressure. And that's typically a 15 or 17 French catheter. And then we take out the femoral cannulas at the end uh, once we're off pump and we're looking good. So after, we, after all the protamines in, then the final thing is we do drop the right lung and take one good look for, for bleeding. Um, and then you have your camera in there. That's very helpful to look for those things. You remove the camera, you put your final pearl tube in. Mm -hmm. And um, one of the other changes over time you've made is the addition of doxycycline in the groin. A any other specific tips for, for the groin closure to help prevent Lymphoma, yeah, so like that. what you're getting is probably the most common complication that we see is actually it's not AFib like it is in other surgery. It's actually lymph leaks and seromas, and there's a couple things over the years that I think have really helped with that. So uh, we use doxycycline on a little gauze and uh, acts as a sclerosing agent. Right after we cannulate, we put that in, and that can help with lymph leaks. The other couple things are we really minimize how much dissection we do around um, the, the vessels, don't get around the vessels at all, just dissect anteriorly, and so minimize going too far away from the vessels. And the third thing is closure is really important, so you have multiple layers right at the level from the femoral sheath up, you know, three, four, five layers is really important. Mm -hmm. um, any other um, specifics in terms of closure for the chest that you do? or? Um Standard thoracotomy closure. No, just a standard thoracotomy closure. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we do close the um, the rib interspace with a, usually one or two figure of eight intercostals. Yeah, yeah. and then um, there have been some uh, changes over the years in terms of post-operative management of these patients. They were some of the first to really get sort of ERAS or you know opioid sparing anesthesia, uh, and so there were some differences earlier in terms of early extubation and mm -hmm. uh, pain control uh, in the ICU. But in terms of, from a surgical perspective, any post-operative differences um, based on the approach? Not really. I mean, a couple things are, you, uh, they are at some somewhat increased risk for unilateral pulmonary edema, minimally invasive approaches, and particularly robotic approaches. So that's important to, to look for um, and that I think occurs a lot with if you're inflating, deflating lung many times. If you're uh, using, I think, too much high pressure CO2, that can cause that as well. Probably, I'd say the other thing is to make sure you didn't, didn't injure the phrenic nerve. So on mm -hmm. the on the post extubation X-rays and follow up X-rays, keep an eye on the diaphragm, make sure it looks yeah. what you think is appropriate. Aside from that, it's what you still worry about from a typical, um, mm -hmm. you know, open mitral approach, making sure the ventricles working, the right ventricle, those types of things. You know, a lot of the literature suggests that uh, length of stay, uh, particularly ICU stay, is a little bit shorter for these patients. I think the multimodal pain control helps as well for that. Uh, in terms of follow-up for these patients, when do you see them back? How often do you see them back? Anything yeah, so, special? so um, 
in and not necessarily for the minis, but all for all mitral operations, that there are ACCHA guidelines that recommend that the patients should get an echo either at discharge or at one month. So our routine is to get an echo before discharge to make sure things look good. Then it depends on your on how your center operates. You know, certainly we see them back at a month, like all post-op patients. I do let them start driving two weeks after surgery, which is different from a sternotomy um, because there's no no broken bones, uh, and most of them are not taking a whole lot of pain medicines by that time. In terms of longer-term follow-up, there are more and more centers that are suggesting that valve centers should continue to follow these patients and that they you should see your post-mitral patients um, at yearly follow-up with an echo at your own institution or an echo outside that you review. And, uh, you know, obviously there's more infrastructure to get to that point, but, but I think that's important for us to continue to follow our own patients and we can intervene should there be something that comes up before our cardiologists intervene. Yeah, these mitral disease in particular is a you know, complex anatomic physiologic process and uh, follow-up sort of seems to be evolving along with the valve team concept and yeah uh, I mean I find patients are usually quite happy and you know they're very pleased with um, their recovery and it's still painful no question but I think their pain is much uh, they're on a much faster pace for recovery after the first few days um, than with a sternotomy and that's why you know patients uh, you know are really requesting it well thank you very much for your time uh, this concludes the podcast, and we thank you for pleasure. listening. Yeah, thank you.